Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi. How was your week? Alex, it's good, but I can't not talk about the weather. I'm sorry. I know it's a topic that we try to avoid, but we are going on like day 41 of over 100 degree temperatures here in Austin. It's brutal. It's humid. We're miserable. I had to vent. You know, we have Kirsten Korosek on the show. I'm going to bring her on in just a second, but Kirsten covers the transport beat. And one thing I've learned from her coverage is that there are two wheeled vehicles four-wheeled vehicles, vehicles that fly, vehicles that even go to space. There's many ways for you to get out of Austin, <laughs> and yet you're still there. Well, I'm, Why? I mean, I, you know, I have kids in school. I mean, you can't just leave oh, right now. I, so. I, I'm going to blow your mind. There are schools in the Northeast where the weather is not as bad. Anyways, <laughs> um, Kirsten Korosek with us again. Kirsten, lovely to have you back on the show. How are you? I am excellent. And Alex, just to point out that you also live in the Northeast, and you complain about the weather all the time as well. Wow, so. Yes. <laughs> Is there a safe place? Uh, yes, it's called San Francisco, where it's perfect. I live in the Northeast, and it has been humid here and hot and miserable, but it has not been Texas hot nor South humid. So I feel like Marianne could do better than Austin. She could, for example, move to the surface of the sun. It's cooler there, better weather, <laughs> but she decides not to. And we'll talk about climate and some stuff about the climate world and the IRA later on the show. But first, we have to talk about SBF's bail situation. What's going on with Better.com's SPAC, Monday.com's growth, VinFast, which is a great story. More to come on that. And then we'll also talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, as mentioned. And then we'll close with some good news. So we have a nice multi-part show for you this morning. But first... SBF is apparently going to jail because he couldn't keep his mouth shut and his Google Drive to himself, Marianne. What's going on? I mean, come on. Like, if we have any doubts about this man's character, I mean, this probably kind of was the really the the nail in the coffin. Leaking the diary of Caroline Ellison, his I guess his former girlfriend and partner, right? The CEO of Alameda Research, FTX's investment arm, that is. I mean, how shitty is that? A diary is something kind of sacred, you know? I mean, no matter what happens between two people, you don't leak someone's diary. And what kind of asshole is that? And did he think nobody was going to know? I mean, how, again, he just shows, displays this arrogance that is just unbelievable. It's not surprising. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not surprised by this based on everything we've seen up to date. I mean, it is a especially extra shitty move. But if you look at all the behavior leading up to there, I think you had a really good word for that, which is arrogance. I'd add, you know, hubris on top of that. Not surprising, Alex. Yeah, not not surprising. Still somehow disappointing, though. Like, I, I, I mean... I like to think that if I had committed a alleged multi-cajillion dollar fraud and I got caught and my two partners were cooperating with the feds, I wouldn't then try to leak their personal stuff. You know, I like to think that at that point I would be like, okay, you got me. But apparently not. Apparently there's always a next level down if you have a shovel and some time. And given that he's been on a bond, it was a $250 million bond. He's had plenty of time, but now it appears he'll be in jail. So more to come on that. I think when the trial comes, we'll have a lot more to say as well. One last thing I'll say on this topic. I was floored to read that even while in jail, this man may have access to his laptop for nine to 10 hours a day. I mean, what? He's in there because he accessed his Google Docs to leak his former partner's diary. And that now he's still going to have access to a dedicated laptop at the jail for, oh, sorry, nine to 11 hours a day. Just have to vent. I just continuously get outraged by this. 
Okay, but Marianne, you can turn off the Wi-Fi. Does the laptop have have access to the megatubes and his prior stuff? It might just be a laptop that he can like use like, you know, so word on. why should he get to do that? Why? Why does he get this privilege? Anyway, we need to I move mean, on. I don't want to get into the debate about prisoner care in America's carceral state, but I do fully empathize with your point. Anyways, speaking of high moral fabric, Marianne, Better.com's going public. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. This started about two years ago. Better.com in its heyday was doing really, really well, right? When interest rates were super, super low at record lows, people were refinancing left and right, left and right. The business was booming. Everything was great. Going public. Yay. And then everything fell apart. A lot of that also had to do with just poor decision making on the part of its executives, which they claim that they admit they could have done better. Miraculously, the company is still going public via SPAC with Aurora Acquisition Corp. Shareholders approved this last Friday. At least 65% voted in favor of the proposal. This means they're set to go public next week. I mean, this is a company that's been bleeding cash quarter after quarter, posting net loss after net loss. Clearly, it's just it's just trying to get some cash here. Yeah. So, Kirsten, you and I spend a lot of time looking at financials. What did you see here? <laughs> I am forever fascinated and I will never probably receive the answer that is the right one, which is how these companies are getting money and how they are managing to go to the capital markets. I thought SPACs were kind of over. And we've had a couple of examples of announcements or actually um, public debuts this week that suggest that they're not. To me, what will be really interesting is what happens with the investors, because in SPACs, as you know, unless there is a framework to force people to keep their money in, they can pull it out. So let's see what it is by the time it publicly debuts. Yeah, I'm very curious about that too. And Marianne, before we let you tell us what you think will happen, a couple of numbers that I thought were pertinent to the conversation. I, I went through some of their SEC filings. This is between their SPAC, their blank check company, and Better itself. But on the better side of things, in the first quarter of 2023, they had total net revenues of just about $21 million, which is, you know, $21 million. It's a lot of money. But it was $205 million in Q1 of last year. So the company has shrunk dramatically. And it did lose $87 million on an operating basis in Q1 of this year. And then finally, it had negative operating cash flow in Q1 of 162.8. So small, shrinking, and not doing so great. So Marianne, why not just shut it down? Well, I mean, they're getting $550 million from SoftBank. Does that answer your question? To my point. To yeah. my point earlier. <laughs> I, I guess what's the play here that rates will come down and people will refinance more yes. and there'll be more overall demand? I mean, I, I think that's the long-term hope or, or plan here. I can't really say much more because I've got more on all this coming out next week. Stay tuned. But yeah, it's basically they need the money or else they're going to fold. Honestly, there's no way they can continue. They've laid off about, what, 91% of the staff since December 2021 you know, running on fumes is that that's just what's happening. So $550 million is a lot of money. Now, what will happen when it actually, you know, hits the markets? Like Kirsten said, I mean, I can't imagine anyone rushing out to like, hey, I want to go buy some better.com stock. Like, really? Who's going to do that? I mean, it, it could go into meme, meme stock territory, I suppose. Mm. But I'll play devil's advocate for just a moment. 
a smaller company that is more focused, could it be well poised for growth based on your expertise in this company? Have they gone through all the pain that will allow them now to succeed? Okay. Objectively, better.com has been known to have decent technology, right? That powers its ability to help originate mortgage loans. So it does have that going for it. Its goal is to to make the whole process faster and easier, supposedly. So if it really can execute on that goal, purely objectively speaking, there is potential for it to maybe survive and do okay eventually if it can get past its leadership. Yeah. Normally here, I would try to do what Kirsten did and kind of like come up with like, a oh, maybe this. But you know, after reading the, the filings, I don't actually have much of a bull case. So let's just leave it there. And then when the combination is complete and it begins to trade, we'll take a look at it and bring it back to the show. Also, when we get Q2 numbers, we'll talk about those. We are looking at March data. It is August. So perhaps things have turned around, but more on lesser.com in time. Now, my deal of the week is monday.com, which is a company that I'm sure you've seen their YouTube ads at some point in time. They were kind of big for a moment back in the work from home, Slack, future of productivity thing. And then they went public and then people kind of forgot about them as far as I can tell, but they're doing very, very well. And I wanted to flag this because I think we talk a lot about slowing tech growth and startups that are struggling and what's going to happen to unicorns and all that. But this is like some kind of an unalloyed good news. The revenue was up 42% in the last quarter, which is great. Their stock price went up. I think it was 15% in response to this. And, you know, with revenues of 176 million roughly in Q2, they're really at scale and putting them almost like startup growth while public. So I was very impressed. What'd you guys think? Well, what was the net loss? I mean, are they starting to close the gap? Is it narrowing? Because revenue, of course, is wonderful. We want that. But if you have insane untethered net losses, you know, you can only run on that little hamster wheel for so long. It's a great point. And one thing that I track a lot with software companies is actually operating losses, just kind of look at where the the engine of the business is. And their operating loss was 12.2 million in the most recent quarter, down from 46.2. And their operating activities generated 47.6 million in cash. So generating cash, cutting their gap losses, and they're they're posting like fast growth while getting more profitable and generating cash, which I think is like the three parts of the stool that SaaS companies have to kind of land on today to do well. And here it is, evidence, Kirsten, that it's possible. So to answer your question, yes, they are. You know, Alex, I, I mean, I was glad to see some kind of positive news out there. And surprisingly, I wrote about a company this week as well that had impressive financial results. D-Local out of Uruguay, yes. payments company. Its stock shot up this week over 30%, at least just in one day alone. It had super impressive results in the second quarter. Revenue was up 59% year over year, 161 million. And gross profit was up 43% year over year to 70.8 million. So another example of not every company is doing badly right now, especially surprising, I feel like in the fintech space where there's been so many, so many companies struggling in the public markets. Yeah. And even more to that point, Marianne, their adjusted EBITDA was also up again sequentially for the quarter. And so they just seem to be kind of firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Do you see D-Local as like an outlier? Because you made an interesting note, which is you were surprised it was in the fintech space. So <laughs> is, this, is this the exception to fintech or do you see some recovering happening right now in fintech? And this is just one of the early indicators. That's a good question, Kirsten. I'd say 
this kind of story is not too common these days. I mean, but there are some fintechs that are doing okay. So I don't want to make it seem all doom and gloom. There are others that had decent results. I think Dave last week had some pretty decent results, but not to this level, I'll have to say. I, I haven't really seen a lot of fintechs, you know, reporting gross profit, revenue jump of this magnitude, stock going up to this extent. So I don't want to say it's an outlier, but it certainly stands out. Yeah. And to put another kind of like data point on that, I haven't dug into this enough yet, Kirsten. So like, don't hold me to it. But Adyen, which is a uh, European money transfer company in the fintech space that has been a consistently excellent performer since it did go public a couple of years back, did have quarterly earnings this week that disappointed and I believe their stock dropped like 20 points or something. So we are seeing people in the money movement game broadly post some results that I think are a little bit struggly. And I think that that issue is why Stripe is still private. So to me, the D-local stuff, Marion, actually is pretty impressive. And before we move on to the most fun company of the week, there was also some executive shakeup there. There's a new CEO. What's going on there? Yeah. So actually, there's two new executives this year. I interviewed co-founder and he is now president and chief strategy officer, Sergio Fogel, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And then on top of that, this week, they hired a new co-CEO and he is a former Mercado Libre CFO, Pedro Arndt. So we have two new executives. Now, the company did have some struggles. It was kind of a a victim of a short seller attack late last year. And this was kind of a drag on its stock. So like these new executives, the really impressive financials. I I mean, I'm this is a very impressive rebound in just a matter of months. Yeah. Now, speaking of rebounds, big numbers and things that are catching our attention, VinFast has gone public via a SPAC. Kirsten, talk us through this one. VinFast, I been fascinated by this company for a while. A lot of folks in the US probably have never heard of VinFast and it's a Vietnamese EV maker. But really the important thing to understand is that it's actually the arm of a massive conglomerate in, in Vietnam called VinGroup, incredibly powerful company in which when you're in Vietnam, you will everything you do will touch VinGroup in some way, healthcare, education, death. (laughs) And VinFast started out as a company doing two-wheelers, scooters, and sort of made this shift and also outsized its ambitions a few years ago. So it's about six years old. It decided to be completely electric and it decided it wanted to carve out uh, market share in the United States, meaning building, manufacturing, initially importing in, but manufacturing here in the U.S., EVs made for Americans that they want. That has not gone super smoothly. They've already had a recall. They Their very first SUV hasn't had the best reviews, feels unfinished. But for whatever reason, investors were not worried about that because when they debuted, that SPAC originally was valued at $23 billion. End of trading the other day was $86 billion wow. market cap. That's insane. So, Yeah. And notably more than Ford or GM or Stellantis are valued. That has gone down a little bit, but it still has a market cap higher than than legacy automakers. So I expect this correction to continue, but still absolutely amazing that it, it came out of the gate that well. I'm blown away by it because I've looked to the numbers and the company's actual results look worse than they really are because they transitioned away from internal combustion engines or 
do we call them ICEs or? I say ICEs or internal combustion engines. And you're right. If you look at their revenues, it's like, you know, halved year over year, but that's because they have gone to be fully EV. They are successful in the scooter market in Vietnam. I think that in the first half of the year, they delivered something like 20,000 two-wheelers, but they've only delivered globally 11,300 EVs or mm, vehicles. That's so not much. That's not a lot. No. Yeah, that's not a lot. Of course, the number of deliveries matters, but also your margin on each vehicle made. So, you know, there are companies like Ferrari out there that don't make a lot of vehicles, but their profit margins are among the highest in the business. Vinvest is trying to be a volume provider. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how they scale. I mean, they are really trying hard to break into the US and it's going to be a tough road. I mean, other companies have done this. Historically, we've seen, you know, Toyota and Hyundai and Kia uh, break into the US market. This was several, you know, four decades ago, but is there room for another? I don't know if there is, but I will say that one thing we've been tracking quite a lot is Tesla's automotive gross margins, which are coming down as it kind of fights in a global price war. Vinfast is starting life as a public company with negative gross margins, which is a tough place to be if you want to reach operating profitability. But we will have more on electric vehicles and where they're built and all things money involving green tech right after this very short break. Hang tight. We are right back. So, Kirsten, one thing that we've been tracking as a publication is the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, a very wide-reaching bill that touched a great part of the transport industry and also kind of green energy and, I would say, climate tech in general. So, why do we care so much about this one-year anniversary? Has it been a big deal? We always like that one-year anniversary. How much has happened? How much have we spent? So, a team of us here put together a whole package of stories, which you can read over at TechCrunch.com, including one that looks at the effect on startups. So, the IRA was signed a year ago this week, and a lot of that money is going towards the big infrastructure projects. And so, the largest corporations and, for instance, automakers are really the beneficiaries of this, as well as on the consumer side incentives, you know, so if you buy an EV, you have a tax credit. But what we're seeing is based on the folks we've talked to in venture capital, there has been a bit of a trickle down effect and that they expect will start benefiting startups even more in say 2024 and 2025. I mean, we've already seen a little bit of evidence of this with General Motors leading a 60 million Series B round into a startup called, is it Mitrichem? They, sorry, Battery Materials Startup. Am I pronouncing it correctly, Kirsten? Yeah, or I think Mitra? so. And yeah, yeah, you got it. I think that that's a perfect example. So General Motors is clearly one of the, the leaders in terms of capturing money from the U.S. government via you know, loans to finance these massive battery factories. They also, of course, are somewhat beneficiary through incentives of, you know, selling their EVs, which are domestically produced, and therefore consumers will buy them because they get tax credits. And as a result of all this investment to really shore up their supply chain, bring it all back into the US, they're also then, of course, using their investments into startups and Mitra Chem is, is a perfect example of that. And, and you're seeing other automakers do this as well. More activity on the strategic investment side, maybe than on the just straight up VC side. So mm-hmm. strategics are really important as it relates to the IRA. The one thing that I'm tracking with this is not just the potential impact on startups and even kind of small businesses that might be suppliers to majors doing big projects, but it's also just seeing overall investment in the American manufacturing base. And I could not find the right chart from Fred 
which is the Fed's database of, of economic information. But there are some trends floating around that show a pretty sharp rise in manufacturing investment here in the US. So the IRA has seemed to have had at least some impact on our ability to make stuff, which is green to a degree because we don't have to ship it in from somewhere else. So that also brings me a lot of joy, Kirsten. Right. Well, and actually, if you're looking for an amazing map to track all of the big battery factory projects, we created one that's interactive and it, oh. and, and it, and it really shows how the quote unquote rust belt, which was sort of the mid Atlantic stage. So Michigan, all the way down into, let's say, North Carolina yes. is now becoming the battery belt. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. I just have to say that's my home state. And I have been watching with fascination at the number of companies, including Toyota, VinFast, building plants in North Carolina. Like this is really a coup for the state. So sorry to interrupt, Kirsten, but you know, I had to get my shout out for my home Go state. Go Tar Heels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're seeing a lot of activity in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Michigan, obviously, where a number of automakers are located, Ohio. You're seeing all these, not just battery cell production factories, either under construction, in operation or planned, but then also these battery materials startups, Redwood Materials is a really good example of a company that started out as kind of a battery recycling startup, but actually now they're making the components of the battery cell, the anode and the cathode. You're seeing all of this activity that started actually before IRA, and I should say that. It started really as a result of COVID's pandemic showed us how weak and sensitive our supply chain was in the chip area. And as at the same time, all these automakers were making these big, bold commitments to EVs. They did not want to have a repeat. So that activity started before IRA. I would say the big takeaway after this one year is that there's an acceleration. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you is like, because I wasn't paying enough attention to this set of areas you know, two, three years ago, frankly. And so to me, this kind of post IRA reality is the reality that I know. So it's hard to kind of judge how much things have changed. But an acceleration is a good point. The question is, Kirsten, are things accelerating enough to have a, a big impact on kind of the global ecosystem for manufacturing EVs, batteries, and kind of clean energy products? I think so. You're seeing activity, not just in making batteries, but also based on the folks we've talked to, and you'll see this in, in our coverage, more investment in energy storage, so batteries that store energy, more investment in other climate tech, so tra like more traditional solar, things like that. You're seeing what was already happening before, like solar is certainly not new, but you're starting to see more of this onshoring. So not just at the consumer side of things or the service side of things, but really the manufacturing side. And a lot of the incentives when you buy an EV to get those tax credits are directly related to if they're made in the United States. So is the vehicle assembled in the United States? Are the materials sourced from North America, I should say? So all of that should, we'll see over the long term, mean that this will just continue. Maybe not at the same rate that we're seeing right now, but, but certainly you're going to see, I mean, there's 30 some battery factory projects right now, either operational or under construction in the United States. In 2019, there were two. Oh. They were operational. Actually, that's by the data point I was looking for, but didn't even know. That's shocking. That's 15x in four years. But before we talk more about this, I want to say a big shout out to Rebecca B from your team and Miranda H from the TC Plus crew who did the, the the yeoman's work on getting the battery thing put together. I think Bryce also helped out with that. Um, so definitely a group project. And the map's really cool. So go play with it because we made it for you to play with. And we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. 
Kirsten, one thing I was surprised though when I was prepping for this show was to learn how much the EU was initially kind of peevish with the United States when it came to what we were trying to do domestically to bolster this part of our production and output. Because to me, I think Europe, I think, you know, polite Dutch people that like to bicycle and use slow toilets. <laughs> so I thought they would love that we were trying to build batteries and shit, but it turns out they were pissed. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, Tim uh, wrote about this. And really, it was an interesting look at what is the effect of these policies on a global scale. And we pay a lot of attention to the effect that our relationship with China. But actually, in this case, our efforts to you know put more money towards fighting climate change, specifically on like the infrastructure and onshoring, sort of sparked a tech arms race with the EU. So... My prediction is that it will be fairly short-lived. I mean, it's a bit speculative, but it will adjust and it will settle. I'm more interested in actually, there's a story that I'm hoping to get up on the site in the next week or so, is sort of exploring what's happened with U.S.-China relations as a result of the same law that went into place a year ago. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what impact nearshoring has on the U.S.-China trade balance and also on... I would just say overall Chinese export volumes just by themselves. If you're not tracking that story, that's a couple of data points to keep an eye on because they're very interesting and they're changing. But let's scoot on to some more good news, which is that, Marianne, we are seeing, at least according to our own Rebecca Skutak, that women-led venture capital firms could form a bright spot in the relatively damp, I would say, 2023 funding environment. Yes, very good news indeed. I was very pleased to read that at least three funds founded by women closed pretty decent size raises this year. We had a 17 million debut fund for Cake Ventures, 75 million, which is very, very good size for Adverb Ventures in July, and then $40 million for Supply Change Capital. This is particularly interesting because I did not know this, but according to Rebecca's reporting in Per Pitchbook, the median fund size for this year is just $13 million. So these funds are actually way above that median size. At least two of them are, and one and one is slightly above. So that's great news. Yeah, it is. Also, can I just say how much better named these firms are than the old venture capital <laughs> firms? Like, if, if these were founded by dudes in the 90s, it would have been like Tall Tree Ventures, Big Rock Ventures, and then said <laughs> Cake, Adverb, and Supply Change. That The last one's even witty. Who would have thought, Kirsten? <laughs> Who would have thought? So I'm going to ask the same question that I asked much earlier, which was, Alex and Marianne, do you think that this these are outliers or is this the beginning of a new trend? Are we going to take stock of the end of 2023 and look back and say, wow, we're seeing the pace of women-led firms gain some ground? Or are these just anecdotal highlights that don't reflect what's really going on? Marianne, you want to take that one first? I mean, it's, it's a tough call, right? I don't, I don't know. Like there's the part of me that hopes that this is just it's a trend that's going to keep on going, that these aren't outliers. But it's very hard to say. I, I think that in the current environment we're in, LPs are realizing they have to be smarter about where they put their dollars. So maybe to me, it's like the smarter ones are realizing they need to be more open minded and who who they're writing the checks to. And and this is something that pains me a little bit to say, but historically, women and, and different this term underrepresented groups in general, we feel like we have to work a lot harder, right? In a way, I think they, they feel like they have to prove themselves in a way that, you know, a white male founded fund would not. So they work harder and they probably have better returns and, you know, just start kick ass investors in a different way, right? Because they're really, they're hustling, I think, in a different way. 
Yeah, the phrase that I've heard is twice as good for half as much. Yeah, that's yeah sums it up, I guess. The thing that I would say, Kirsten, because I think it's actually the right question to ask. You know, when we're looking at anecdotes, you know, the plural of anecdotes is not data, it's anecdata, you know, something to always keep in mind. But here's the thing that, that stuck out to me with these with these funds. We are seeing right now the pace at which venture capitalists writ large can accrete capital dramatically come down. So to see a number of women-led firms land funds that are above the median point for this year means that some are succeeding even in a down market that we had concerns of that would limit the ability for women and other underrepresented groups to use Marianne's favorite term would be able to. So instead of seeing one fund and noticing that as like, oh, someone pulled it off, we have a collection all kind of coming around the same time. So to me, it's bullish, but I do think you're right that we have a little more data work to do. But I mean, you know, this is $130 million in capital that we're talking about right here. That's a lot of money in their hands to put to work. So even if it wasn't great year over year, I'm still encouraged by it. And actually, the point you made earlier was actually Marianne made this point earlier was that these amounts are higher than the sort of average funds. So, so that's a positive as well or positive momentum. So even if you're not seeing the same flurry of ideas, each round or each fund is larger than it has been in the past. So you can do more with that money, obviously, right? More power. Yeah. And also these fund sizes make a lot of sense to me because. You know, I was taking a look at the pre-seed market in the mostly the U.S. context, looking at data from Carta, which mostly works with American startups. And what we've seen is that the amount of money that's invested in the pre-seed market is going up a little bit compared to Q1, but on fewer rounds. So kind of up and down, but it does seem to be stabilizing. But what matters for these investors we just talked about is that the, the median price for a seed, uh, sorry, pre-seed round startup has come down. So they're going to get more ownership for their investments that they're doing now than they would have a year or two ago, possibly setting them up for a better financial result for their investors and therefore a larger fund maybe the next time they raise. So to me, there's some dynamics that are not founder friendly, but are investor friendly. But in this investor context, I mean, maybe that's Marianne, you know, to their benefit. Yeah, actually, I think it. It's not such a bad thing. I mean, maybe the more realistic investing landscape is good for for everyone. And uh, I'm not surprised by it either. I mean, like I've mentioned before on the show, we're seeing a lot of very early stage deals in general in my inbox. So I'm not surprised to see that pre-seed funding is up. I am a little surprised that round size is larger, but maybe that's just because investors are being more selective. And then they're, you know, the bets they are taking, they're kind of going, you know, more in on them. So uh, overall, really interesting data. Can we hire somebody to do like a little app for Marianne's inbox that tracks the number of pitches by their dollar amount and then like just graphs them? Like Marianne has received 73 pitches between zero and $15 million funding rounds in the last seven days. That's down 14%. That would like, be how cool fun. Would that be? Yeah, that would be very fun. I would say right, right about now that definitely they would fall very much so in the pre-seed and seed stage, a lot of them. You know, my nephew can code, I think. Well, my son can too, so I could ask him, ah, you know? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. We should get the youths on that. Right. That would be amazing. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I think we should go ahead and wrap up here, but let me tell you, if you want to hear this exact trio of voices all chatting in perfect three-part harmony, you can do that at TechCrunch Disrupt this year, September 19th through the 21st, on Tuesday, we will be kicking off the entire show. And so you will see the three of us on stage trying to be charismatic in public. It's always a good time. And uh, we're so excited to have Kirsten for the first time on stage with us for the show. Guys, I think we're already planning what we want to talk about. So it's going to be a real good time. Can you give me any hints about what you might want to joke about when we do it? Well, first of all, I'm a little insulted that you said we're going to try to be charismatic because <laughs> for me, it's just sort of natural and I don't really have to try it at all. 
Um, so I am going to be bringing the energy that day because I have a big interview with JB Straubel, who is the Tesla co-founder, former CTO, and now returning board member, but he's also the founder of Redwood Materials, which we were talking about earlier today. So I'm really going to be like fired up. Okay, Marianne, what surprises can you tell people you're going to bring to the quasi roundtable? I haven't gotten that far ahead yet, Alex, but I do plan to make sure I have my glasses so I can read the script (laughs) if needed on stage this year, unlike last year. Yeah. Last year, Marianne forgot her glasses. Natasha's mic was too high because she's of a more modest stature. And I kept touching my makeup and getting all over my hands. So we're going to do better this year. If you like last year, it's going to be plus one across the board, but it's going to be a great time. And if you don't have a ticket yet to our big confab coming up in San Francisco this September, you can do so with the code equity and save yourself some money and make us look good internally. Kirsten, though, because you have been so generous with your time on our podcast, why don't you tell people about your show that you do on the side? Oh, yeah, my side hustle. I have a podcast with two guys who are fun, hilarious, smart, intellectual guys. Our podcast is called The Atonicast. We call ourselves and our listeners The Atonicats. <laughs> and um, really, it's, <laughs> yes. And really, it's a podcast about the future of transportation. So the idea is this that a lot of news coverage is, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide because breaking news. And we'll take one topic and go, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. So we'll interview founders. We talk a lot about one specific issue all around the future of transportation, mostly autonomous vehicle technology, hence the name Autonicast. Well, I appreciate that. Everyone on the audience side of this show knows that I hate driving. And so if it's autonomous, I want it. And uh, we're going to not let Marianne rebut that. We're just going to go away now. And we're back Monday morning (laughs) with our usual show. So stick close to us. And of course, we are Equity Pod on Twitter, Threads, and Equity on Blue Sky if you want to stay in touch. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.